An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have a special guest, Zach Stafford, award-winning journalist, Tony Award-winning Broadway producer in the play Strange Loop, podcaster, and currently columnist for MSNBC. Zach combines his lived experience as a Black gay man with superb reporting and storytelling skills to provide a voice that's uniquely his. He's the former editor-in-chief of The Advocate, and his work has appeared in everything from The Guardian and The New York Times to The BBC and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. And now you can add financier to his resume. One of his more recent endeavors is as an advisory board member for Colorful Capital, which seeks to bring capital and support to enterprises founded and led by members of the broad LGBTQ plus community. Welcome, Zach. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here. My pleasure. So let me ask you a question about your origin story. You often refer to growing up as a black gay person in the South. Tennessee, mm-hmm. I think, to be specific. Yes. What has that meant to you? And where did you find your voice? In other words, how did you become the person you are today? Wow. Um, I'm not sure. It, it's so funny. People think I had some big master plan for my life. And uh, I really didn't. I think I had lots of other plans that didn't work out. And I just kept taking every no as a note from the universe and kept following those no's that led me to the life that I have today. But and when I was younger, I lived outside of Nashville. I lived in a very interesting town where I was the only person like myself. I didn't really see a lot of people like me around racially, sexually, anything. And um, I always wanted to leave really bad. And once I left and I went to school in Chicago, I realized that all those things I didn't like about my life and my origin really shaped me. A lot, a lot, a lot. Like I could never shake that Southern Baptist upbringing. I couldn't shake the Southerness. I did get rid of the accent somehow, but I this the sensibilities of being a Southerner always were with me. Um, so I think in the beginning of my writing career, I was just really aware of that tension that I lived in and was from. And in the beginning, I was really trying to run away from it. And I think as I've gotten older, I've really learned to embrace it. Um, and that's kind of like how my origin story goes is that a lot of my work is just me realizing I should turn inwards and focus on the stories that I wanted to see as a kid, stories I wanted to watch, read, maybe perform, and throw resources and time into those, um, or it, or in the least put a spotlight on them so other people could have a chance. So that's why my work has been so much, you know, isn't really interested in people that look like me. Um, and what was so amazing about working on A Strange Loop, the Broadway musical that I helped produce, is that uh, I think the work that I've really invested in has just become windows into lives of other people's, not even all, only my own. 
Um, and I think windows are really great for people. It allows you to, like, to look in and see what a life is like. And so, yeah. So I think that's like kind of why I'm really, it's so funny to hear you say Tennessee because it was in the beginning when I first did my first books. Tennessee was like such an identifier for me. It was such a big thing. And I think it was um, just so shocking to me that even was it existing and allowed to have the jobs I did because no one from Tennessee had them before. So I think there was a lot of pride in the beginning. So let me just follow up on that. You mentioned a strange, but we'll get to that later, um, is a window. And you're known for your reporting about I, I hate having to repeat all these letters every time. As no, does LGBTQ plus community, or yeah. we'll just say the queer community broadly constructed. Um, but whether you watch A Strange Loop or Boys Town, which is an award-winning documentary you produced and hosted about Chicago's historically gay neighborhood, or even just read a real estate article you wrote about <laughs> in the New York Times about who really lives in and is welcome in Fire Island, I detect themes that are universal, economic mm -hmm. tension, who mm -hmm. belongs, what's authentic, what's the celebration of diverse culture versus what's an appropriate, unfair appropriation of privilege. And those points of friction and personal development, yes, they exist in Boys Town and Fire Island and with the story of um, the, the main character in Strange mm -hmm. But everywhere, I mean, whether you're in a trailer park community or a gated suburban one, and so it's sort of community specific, but also universal. Yeah. Do you see the things you write as universal with specific manifestations, or do you think they're unique to the community? Uh, I do think they're very universal. I think there's some uniqueness and some specificity that happens in a lot of these stories that I focus on. Um, obviously, some geographic focus on a lot of them. I'm really interested in place and space, and that's because... I never planned on being a journalist or a producer. I was supposed to be a cultural geographer. That was my training, really. Uh, and I was really interested in space and place and the making of identity. So that comes through in a lot of the work because I'm always like, what's the place I'm looking at? And that really has to be, and this is why I also like plays, is that I love a slice of life. I love like going into someone's life and being like, here's a day in their life, here's an hour, and using that specificity of that story to find some universality in all of that, which is what you're you're bringing up. And so I think queerness is a really great space to show a universal nature of a story because queerness is one of the few identities um, that we all, that not all of us have, but that some of us have, that cuts across every other sector of identity. So class, race, et cetera, geography. There's a queer person that grew up in a trailer park, just like there's a queer person that's been a royal before. There's a queer black person, there's a queer Asian person. We kind of everywhere. And I think there's a, a way in which being queer, you, I think of queerness as, as a border, like we sit on the borders of identity. Um, and there's this really amazing writer, Gloria Anzaldúa, who wrote this book called Borderlands or La Mestiza, Mestizca. Um, and she says that like people who hold two kind of oppressed identities uh, are border walkers and they live on the edges of society. And it gives them a really amazing vantage point to look at the structures and the powers and the economics of different places and spaces and people. So um, I think within that kind of understanding structure, understanding power that we all live within these structures, you know, there's no one that doesn't live in the world that we live in. We all are kind of impacted by it in, in different ways. Um, I think that's where you get to see kind of how complicated everything is. And I do think the stories I focus on help illuminate them in these really specific ways that help make it more understandable. And I think, you know, Black queer people 
show you what's possible, what's also impossible in this big, big world around you. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. You're onto something there. I never thought of it that way. Well, have you ever thought to write a play or a novel or some sort of fiction work exploring these themes? Because what you're talking about, of course, is at the heart of great literature and great plays. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really frightened of that. I, it's so funny. I get a lot of pressure because I work with so many uh, playwrights, screenplay writers, producers in Hollywood, like all these people. And uh, I've worked in the space of nonfiction my whole life. Like I, I've never published fiction, I don't think. I've never been in a fiction class, nothing. And so much of fiction is, you know, inspired by a personal experience that you then fictionalize. So the infrastructure of that, those types of stories do have nonfiction, you know, architecture within it, but then you kind of have fun with it. I've always been so enamored by reporting, by nonfiction, by like playing with the world around me to express something. Um, but I do face and have, and I have a desire to one day write a play or something. I don't know. It just, it just scares me. I don't know why. And I've never been able to say why it scares me. And people ask me it all the time, but it just really frightens me. So, so tell me about a strange loop. We're recording this shortly after the play closed, mm -hmm. which was after a smash hit run, included two Tony Award wins, including Best yeah. Musical. I'm sure there'll be revivals and traveling shows eventually. Um, how'd you get involved in that project? So it's a really funny story. Uh, in the pandemic, you know, everything shut down, obviously. And I took a break from my life as, as a journalist with like a capital J, I would say. So I'd been the editor-in-chief of The Advocate. I was hosting a morning show. I didn't sleep very much. I was just living in New York. I was living in LA. It was kind of all over the place. So when the pandemic hit, it was a moment of not only rest because everything stopped uh, and I left the magazine, but um, it was a moment for me to kind of contemplate what else could happen in my life what was possible with everything in front of me. And a really close friend of mine named, named Binge Pasek, who is an Oscar-winning songwriter, created, you know, La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, all these things. He was one of those people in my ear who'd been pushing me to think about plays, theater, film, all this, because that's the world that he worked in. Um, and we began talking about building a company together and producing and you know, as we were going around and around in this, and, and we're still working on a lot of these things right now um, and thinking through them, a strange loop came up because he was really close with Michael R. Jackson, the playwright. I knew Michael already, and the show had just won a Pulitzer off-Broadway, and um, they really wanted to go to Broadway. And it was as Broadway was kind of coming back, you know, we were eyeing the 2022 season. It looked possible and a theater had opened up. So it happened like so, so quick where I got, we got a phone call. We needed to raise capital. You know, we have to raise a lot of capital to get a show up. You know, shows can range from, you know, needing $7 million to 20 plus million dollars of capitalization to just get open on Broadway. So I began, I got looped into the fundraising. And at the same time, I was exploring other kind of like producing and fundraising projects. One of them's Colorful Capital, which I'm, I know we're going to talk about. And I'm, um, and it was really just, at first it just began like, how do I give, get capital to these people so that their art can be put up on Broadway? And then as we got deeper into it, it became, okay, now we have the money, but how can we like work on other things? And being an editor in chief, I'm very aware of not only story, but how to package and commercialize stories. Magazine covers are stories that you put in 
every grocery store and bookstore around the world and it has to express a visual story and then there's a written story and it's it's a very like economic thing to deal with and it's very much about how do you just sell people something monthly um, through stories and Broadway is similar you work on a story that gets put up and performed and it does and it happens every night so as I got deeper into the production you know I kept getting pulled into more projects more things um, bringing in celebrities to help you know, produce the show, then doing events around the show, doing press. So I got to work in tandem with all these teams. And then I woke up one day and was like, wow, I'm really a Broadway producer now. Yeah, that's, like, this is really weird. And for me, it just was, it just felt so similar to working with writers in the media space of just helping them find a story, build it out, get the money, develop it, all that. So, um, so yeah, that's how it happened. And it was like a wonderful nine months. And now the Broadway run is done and we're dreaming of what's next and that's what's so powerful about a good story is that it doesn't ever die it just finds new ways to live uh, in new places so so that's what we're trying to figure out now uh, as a team it is a good story for the people who are listening to the podcast who didn't yet have a chance to see it um you want to just give a really brief summary mm-hmm. tell us why that story appeals to you yeah so a strange loop is a meta musical it's about a guy named Usher. He's in his early 20s. Uh, he is working as an usher on Broadway at The Lion King. And on his breaks in between, um, you know, shows and well, during downtime during the show, he is working on a musical called A Strange Loop, which is a musical about a guy named Usher writing a musical about a guy named Usher writing a musical. And that's kind of where the meta part of it comes in. Um, but it's really you know, a meditation on identity, life, religion, um, and in all the other characters, you know, Usher is the protagonist. And then there's the ensemble of seven thoughts, which are his inner thoughts that become personified. Um, and they, they are kind of always like harassing him, pushing him. And the thoughts also, you know, begin to play his mother, his father, his siblings, all these people. So it's really amazing kind of gospel pop music show that was really groundbreaking in terms of story, music, and everything. And um, and it was just such a joy. And it felt like a, I don't know, like a page from my own diary in many ways. You know, every time I saw the show, it would take me back to different memories of being a Black gay kid in my family and religion and being in church. So it felt very personal. And then for those that didn't have that personal pull, it feels like a window into a life that you hear about but don't get to see. Um, so yeah, and that's and it's it's very it feels very strange loop when you watch it. You're like, what is this thing? It's on cycle right now. You mentioned colorful capital, so let's talk about it. Yeah. Uh, this is a private equity firm. It says it can source different investing opportunities because, and I quote from their website, diverse mm-hmm. gender and sexual identity and expression is too often a barrier to access to capital and inclusion in traditional financial market flows. End quote. And it defines its mission as to bring capital support and scaffolding to enterprises founded and led by members of the broad LGBTQ plus community by filling finance, financing gaps and overcoming detrimental heuristics, we intend to bridge divides and strengthen economic opportunity, end quote. Now, implicit in that is the idea that opportunities and access to capital and expertise are not distributed fairly yeah. between the heteronormative and LGBTQ plus communities or the white community and people of color or whatever. Give me some more nuance on that because it's yeah. it's easy for me to say like, 
Tim Cook's the CEO of Apple. He's a gay <laughs> man, you know. Um, yeah. what, where are we? Yeah. Certainly, you know, first let's talk about it in terms of the economic world. Why will this be, do you think this will be a success? And why is it a screen that will find under-examined opportunities? Yeah, I think, you know, it's so funny you bring up Tim Cook because he is kind of a really good example to knock down ideas that, you know, queer people don't struggle, queer people don't have yeah. access to jobs, all that stuff. But it's what I think is so amazing about Tim Cook is that, and even myself in many ways, is that just because one example exists within a vertical doesn't mean structurally there is a pathway forward. Just because one person, you know, survived the battle, got through and lived to tell the tale doesn't mean others can or even resourced enough to do so. And I think that's what we're talking about a lot with Colorful Capital is how do we create structural ways in which queer people are consistently seen, not just when they're exceptional and I've already proven that they can win the game, but when they're starting the game and have the resources. And I think so many, you know, straight people, white people, even other folks of different privileges have kind of structures in place that help people ladder up and you're kind of pulling people up as you go. But a lot of people of color, queer people don't have that and they don't even know where to go to find it. And we still know that, you know, people like to hire people that look like them. They like to give money to people that look like them. It just, it just is a thing as humans. You know, it's like, you, there's like a safety when you meet someone that has a similar story to you. And that's why we love stories. Stories let us know like, oh, you're like me. You've been through similar things. I can trust you. I know what you're going to do next. And a lot of VC capital is still stuck in that kind of repetition of only betting on horses they've already, you know, betted on before or raced before or the ones that look very similar. And, you know, we know through just so many people like the Tim Cooks, like Tim Cooks, one of the first ever of his of his kind, uh, an openly queer man to run a major, you know, multi-trillion dollar company that um that we should be investing in young Tim Cooks. Like what would happen if we put a lot of money behind people like him? Um, what would the world look like then? Not just what does the world look like when everything's stacked up against you and you somehow find a way? Um, and that's what Colorful Capital is really about. It's about, you know, enabling and resourcing us as advisors within the firm to look into our networks of people we're working with, betting on already, and kind of really supercharging um, projects that we really think will do really well um, so that a pathway can be made and a system can be put in place to where queer entrepreneurs um, have at least a family that can look out for them in the, the Silicon, Silicon Valley and, you know, the financial markets in New York and London, everywhere that just is like, I get what you're going through and we can be a place to not only help you financially, but also talk to you about it as well. Um, so that's, yes, that's where it kind of came from. And I was approached by, you know, friends that run it, uh, Megan and Bill. And, you know, I worked in tech. I worked at Grindr um, for a while or for a few years with Joel Simkai, the founder. And, I got a front row seat to the, the barriers that even really successful queer led, queer focused tech companies face. You know, Grindr just went public recently. Uh, and that was really exciting for them. I'm not a part of that company anymore, but, you know, Grindr is one of the stickiest apps in the world. It has some of the highest EAU rates. It has a ton of capital coming out of it in terms of profit, um, but it still was like, struggles to get respected in Silicon Valley. And a lot of that has to do with it being queer. Uh, and I faced that as an executive there, uh, even though we're the same as Bumble and Tinder. So I know firsthand that there is still a lot of homophobia in the VC space. 
So we need, you know, companies like Colorful Capital to, you know, help fight that homophobia in a real way. You know, I, de I, de I detect a, um, a theme that's going to come across two things that we've talked about, which is Colorful Capital and a strange loop. I, I heard an interview you did once about Usher, the main character, and mm -hmm. strange loop in which you were saying, is it nice that we can have a story about a black man who's not extraordinary? Who's, yeah, <laughs> you know, who is just like us and, and yeah. trying to to move on. That 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 you know, MJ, the Michael Jackson musical, um, great. You know, you know, yeah. start with the King of Pop, the most successful pop sensation of all time. That's not the everyday experience of people. Yeah, right? yeah, like, and I think yeah, and I think people deserve the privilege of being a failing too. I learned a lot in college and after college through the theorist and writer at Columbia, Jack Happerstam, who writes about the art of queer failure and that like failure is where like real knowledge is gained for everybody. You know, you don't know until you know. It was like, and that was so much about my life as a writer where I remember I spent the first few years of my life pitching The New Yorker, pitching big magazines when I had no right to be writing in these places. I was not ready, but I wanted to learn through the nose how to get a yes. And I think so many people like Usher in a strange loop or like many of the companies that we will invest in deserve the opportunity to succeed and then also fail and know that they can try again. And I think queer people, especially queer people of color, are only expected to be perfect all the time. And, and Michael Jackson is a great example like that as an artist outside of all the controversy from a young age, he had to be perfect all the time for him to be successful. And that destroyed him in the end. And I think we have to move away from a culture that expects perfection with every move you make. And I think we need to be much more, um, you know, allowing grace to exist for people to trip and fall and get back up and try again. So yeah, there is that continuity, I guess, there where I'm like, I don't need you to be perfect. I just need you to be alive and trying. And that's all I ask. Well, you're also going to need, I mean, call for capitalism, VC firm, people do want to return to their capital. Oh, yeah, exactly. You're, you're going to want them to be profitable. So so what's your role yeah. going to be there? Yeah. So I my role there as an advisor is to find kind of underrepresented folks who have really good ideas that need some scaffolding, some infrastructure, and then the resources to do them. And then also kind of folks to work with them over time to really flush it out. Um, so with Cliff Capital, you know, we can't be as, um, you know, I'm very, I don't want to say lackadaisical, but I have a lot more freeway when I'm an editor with an article that's a very different, you know, stakes level than a company that's getting, you know, X amount of seed funding. Um, so there, you know, it's really about like, how do we find the best people that we think can do the best with the money that we, we have, we have to deploy. Um, so yeah, I'm really there to vet and find and make sure that we're thinking outside the box. Cause I think a lot of the things that I've done, whether it was, you know, betting on Grinder, which is one of the first publicly queer companies, I came in at a time that was not even a reality or a thought, um, or Strange Loop, which no one thought should open on Broadway because of the pandemic was still raging. And yet we still won a Tony and have gone on to do well. I, I think I'm really good at finding underdogs that can perform. So I do give a lot of like, Oh my God, people should fail, but I do like winning a lot. <laughs> so, and I try to find winners too. Let's talk about the future rather than what exists. What steps does American society need to take to truly make diversity sort of a treasured resource and mm -hmm. part of the American culture? Um, 
rather than something that people are scared of? Oh, I think they need to experience it. I think people need to step out of their own boxes. They need to look at their own lives and ask questions like, and why do all my friends look the same? Why do all my friends have the same job? Why do I? And within those questions, you get to get answers. Like, you know, all my friends may look the same because I, I, I grew up in um, a working class town where everyone worked at the factory and the factory did this. Like, I think beginning to get the answers to the why of your life gets you to a space where you can understand how your life can be more diverse or more inclusive or what you even want that to look like. Um, I think diversity is one of the great privileges of a life. And it does require a lot of privilege to diversify your life. You know, traveling is expensive. Visiting new cities is expensive. It's emotionally exhausting to try new things. But I know it's worth it because I've had to deal with it. I've dealt with the opposite side of it. And that's why I think I'm, I'm like here to tell the good tale is that I was always alone. I was the first black kid in my class, one of the only black kids in my class. I was one of the first gay black kids people met. My family was the only black family in a country club we joined. Like, I've always been the first or the only. And while that has been really tough at times, I've also learned so much. And I know what a privilege it is to not have to, you know, be alone all the time. Um, but I do know that I'm here to tell the tale of like, you know, being outside of the ordinary or not being so normative is such a wonderful gift too. Um, especially if you can take away all like, you know, I don't like being denied a job for being black, but you know, I've learned a lot by being the only black person in a company. So when I go to another company, I can talk about, you know, what does inclusion look like? How do we restructure this company to, you know, people like me and others that don't look like me, but don't look like everyone in this room have an opportunity to succeed. So what I think when we talk about diversity, what we're asking, especially white people, white straight people is, you know, step into a room where you're not comfortable and see what you learn. And I think people will learn a lot if they're open to it. Um, and it only gets better. I mean, we see this in, I love cities, urban cities, because you get to see cultures mixing and swirling. And so much of America is literally about being a melting pot. So if you're going to live in this great project called America, um, which was about diversity and inclusion, at least was what we tell ourselves, then I think people should begin enacting that in their life and break through the boxes that they're sitting in. Um, and I swear it will be okay. It will be fine. It will be uncomfortable, but it will be okay. How <laughs> do you do that? I, I, you started, we started this conversation, you were talking about a sense of place. And I was smiling internally because it's one of the things that I always um, feel strongly about. I am a New Yorker. I have a very strong sense of place, mm -hmm. and, you know, having grown up in the Bronx and living in Manhattan and being in New York and what a sense of place means to me. Mm -hmm. um, and yet so much of life nowadays is lived online. Yeah. Your sense of place is what URL you're on. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be segregated, not just in a black or white space, but in a, a right left space and yeah. economically privileged versus poor space. And whatever, you know, whatever divide there is, it is there. Yeah. And you can't just walk outside and meet a new person or a diverse person. You know, how is there anything that we can do online that mm -hmm. do that? I mean, I love the internet. I've written so much about being kind of like a digital nomad. When I mean, I, going back to my origin story, 
I thought I'd be a cultural geographer, but I was interested in digital places. And that's what got me to Grindr. When Grindr called, they were like, Grindr's a GPS app. It's one of the first apps ever launched on Apple where you use your GPS signal to show you who else is around you on the app and can connect with them. And that revolutionized how we all deal with space and place and social media. Um, Twitter used to be geolocative too. People forget this, but it used to literally show you where the tweet was coming from. So at the beginning of this kind of emergence of app-based technologies, it was obsessed with your place in the world and using that place as a cardinal point to connect with people in a digital space, which is kind of placeless. But as we've learned, it is not placeless. Like as you're saying, certain parts of Twitter have an identity, like a digital geography, certain parts of you know, Twitch, YouTube, all have senses of places now. And what I would say to your question is, you know, the internet allows it to be even easier for you to explore in consensual and safe ways of different places and people around you. And I would just, I guess for me, it's like people break your algorithm, like try to like search words on Twitter outside of what's being served to you. Go to websites that you don't go to all the time. So if you read the New York Times every day, I don't know, try out salon.com. There's like so many other, but just explore. And I think the internet allows you to start testing being in new places and spaces. I mean, as a queer person, I've learned to be queer through AOL Instant Messenger. Like I would go to chat rooms. I knew nothing about being gay, but I would go in these chat rooms. I would talk to people, engage. And there I learned. And I think people can still do that. And that was the great promise of the internet was that borders would disappear and you could go anywhere. And to your point, it feels lately that borders have gotten tighter. The, the wall between, you know, a foxnews.com and a cnn.com are insurmountable. Um, and I think we have to realize that it is just like a Google search away and that you should do that labor and try. So that's that's my thing. I, I love the phrase, break your algorithm. I will tell you that when I was doing research on you, um, for the next three days, I got served up tons of queer messages and ads and, <laughs> and stuff. So, um, yes, it does, it, does funny. Break the, it does break the algorithm. Let me, let me change the subject a bit. Um, you co-wrote a book entitled with dogs heal. Yes. Powerful stories of people living with HIV and the dogs that saved them. I am going to outright pander to the dog lovers in our audience and ask you to talk about it. Oh my God. I'd love to talk about it. And I think I have, I can't talk about anything yet. But the book is having a whole new life, which will be announced later this year. But for now, the book, Windox Heal, is a project that took me seven years to complete with a group of colleagues based all around the country. Um, and the idea was how... So I, I met this guy named Dr. Rob Garofalo. He's a very well-known doctor. Um, he works with HIV-positive kids, um, which people don't realize this, but HIV still impacts youth at a really, really, really high rate globally. So he's kind of one of the leaders in that space. And he himself was uh, diagnosed with HIV later in life as a doctor. And he got, you know, he dealt with a lot of emotions. He was sad. He was depressed. He thought he had to quit his job, like all these things. And through the process of getting on treatment and kind of rebuilding his life, he adopted a dog. And this dog was named Fred. And he says the dog saved his life because he was, you know, really down in the dumps. And through this process, he learned that dogs are actually, when put alongside actual medication for HIV, are some of the best healers for folks dealing with chronic illnesses like HIV, which is a disease that, a virus and a disease that 
you know, still has a lot of stigma. People feel like they can't tell people, they can't disclose, they can't be around people. There's all this stuff going on with it. And when you're HIV positive, you have really high rates of homelessness and just all this stuff. But dogs, we found, really help people, you know, get inspired. And the root of that is, you know, it really taught people to to love something else and also to let something else love them. And so through this process, we built this this project called When Dogs Heal, which began as a gallery show where portraits of people with their dogs would be shown. And these essays I would write. So I was the writer of the book with Christina Garofalo. And um, we would interview, we interviewed dozens of people and work with them to tell the story of their life and their dog's life in these essays. And they'd be presented with the work. And what was really important to me as someone who's, my grandmother's died from complications from AIDS. My uncle died. Like I grew up watching a lot of death around this. And a lot of us in the 90s did too, because the epidemic was really bad then. Um, we, I was, it was really important to me to show people who were alive and happy and thriving and to also show stories where they dealt with a lot, but came out, you know, on the other end, feeling great, looking great, and were able to be part of a gallery show. And then the gallery show became a book and then the book became, you know, what it is today. And, um, it just really, I, every few years I try to engage in a project. It was mostly book-based for a while where, you know, I get to donate most of my time and work on something that does give back to charity. The book gives back to a charity called Fred Says that actually helps HIV positive kids. Um, and yeah, it's just been like a really wonderful like way to look through the world through the lens of a dog. And I don't own a dog. I used to own a dog when I was a kid, but I, I, I love dogs. So it's like the project in my life that I don't feel like I have a dog. I have dozens of dogs when I get to look at the book and it's really wonderful. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about and why? I mean, you seem to be passionate about everything. So I'm going to ask you to prioritize <laughs> what, am, what am I passionate about? Um, I mean, I'm really excited about podcasts. And I've done podcasts. I mean, you have a podcast. I have a podcast called Vibe Check. And I've been doing podcasting forever. But lately, I don't know, as the world's reopened, I've seen people re-engaging with them. And people are making their own that are really amazing. and People have gotten really comfortable with like audio recording equipment in their house and just being, you know, personalities and telling stories. And I think podcasting has this huge future for storytelling um, now that we're back in the world because people love to listen to podcasts. Let's finish with some uh, short Q&A. How do you relax? Um, I play tennis. It's not relaxing. It's movement. But I play tennis um, a lot. Um so that helps me relax. I I go for hikes. I live in California. So I go for a lot of walks. Well, LA, we call them hikes, but they're really walks. They're walks up some like slight heel, hills. Um, and I listen to a lot of self-help podcasts. It would surprise people how many, like I I listen to Brene Brown all the time, Oprah Super Soul Sunday, Glennon Doyle, all of those. And it's really... Um, it's really funny. Like I'm that stereotype, like drinking a green juice, walking around some hills in California, listening to Brene Brown talk about being brave. So it's just fun. It's kind of like my mother in many ways. But uh, yeah, that's a big relaxer for me. What music do you listen to? Um, I listen to a lot of indie soul music. And I would say the biggest surprise is I listen to a lot of dance music. I don't know if that's a surprise. But I listen to a lot of electronic music. Like I love music with a lot of 
BPMs that I can kind of like lose. I'm not a, my, my partner loves lyrics. He can sing like every song in the world. Um, I'm not so lyric based, which is interesting. I love like a vibe, like a good vibe. So <laughs> what are you reading right now? I'm reading The Science of Storytelling, Why Stories Make Us Human and How to Tell Them Better by William Storr. It's this book was a gift to me recently by a friend. Uh, and it gets into the scientific reasons. I'm, I'm a child of scientists. My mom's a scientist. And it gets into the scientific reasons of why we like stories and what about stories gets us excited. And it really boils down to patterns. Our brains love patterns a lot. And when you pick up on a pattern and you can predict what's happening, you get really engaged. So it's really interesting. If you're interested in like the science of how to tell a good story, it's a really good book. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? What would I tell them? Um, oh my God, this is hard. If I could tell every person in the world one thing, what would it be? I would say, oh, um, no is a complete sentence. A friend said this the other day while we were doing something. And I'd heard it before and it really just, that's, I love it. Because it's like people always have to explain why they want to say no to something. And I'm like, no, just say no. Just say no and walk away. It'll be fine. Because it's a boundary. So that's what I would tell people. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with Joel McCumnick and our special guest, Zach Stafford. And despite what he said, I suspect Zach says yes a lot more than he says no. <laughs> Zach, thanks for including agreeing to come on this podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And I do say yes too much. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukonik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.